Chapter Twenty Seven of News from Nowhere. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Elizabeth Clett. News from Nowhere by William Morris. Chapter Twenty Seven. The Upper Waters. We set Walter ashore on the Berkshire side, amidst all the beauties of Stretley, and so went our ways into what would once have been the deeper country under the foothills of the White Horse. And though the contrast between half-cocknified and wholly unsophisticated country existed no longer, a feeling of exultation rose within me, as it used to do, at sight of the familiar and still unchanged hills of the Berkshire Range. We stopped at Wallingford for our midday meal. Of course all signs of squalor and poverty had disappeared from the streets of the ancient town, and many ugly houses had been taken down, and many pretty new ones built. But I thought it curious that the town still looked like the old place I remembered so well, for indeed it looked like that ought to have looked. At dinner we fell in with an old but very bright and intelligent man, who seemed in a country way to be another edition of old Hammond. He had an extraordinary detailed knowledge of the ancient history of the countryside, from the time of Alfred to the days of the parliamentary wars, many events of which, as you may know, were enacted round about Wallingford. But what was more interesting to us, he had detailed record of the period of the change to the present state of things, and told us a great deal about it, and especially of that exodus of the people from the town to the country and the gradual recovery by the town-bred people on one side, and the country-bred people on the other, of those arts of life which they had each lost. Which loss, as he told us, had at one time gone so far, that not only was it impossible to find a carpenter or a smith in a village or small country town, but that people in such places had even forgotten how to bake bread, and that at Wallingford, for instance, the bread came down with the newspapers by an early train from London, worked in some way, the explanation of which I could not understand. He also told us that the townspeople who came into the country used to pick up the agricultural arts by carefully watching the way in which the machines worked, gathering an idea of handicraft from machinery because at that time almost everything in and about the fields was done by elaborate machines, used quite unintelligently by the labourers. On the other hand, the old men amongst the labourers managed to teach the younger ones gradually a little artisanship, such as the use of the saw and the plane, the work of the smithy, and so forth. For once more by that time it was as much as, or rather more than, a man could do to fix an ash-pole to a rake by handiwork so that it would take a machine worth a thousand pounds, a group of workmen and half a day's travelling, to do five shillings' worth of work. He showed us, among other things, an account of a certain village council, who were working hard at all this business, and the record of their intense earnestness in getting to the bottom of some matter which in time past would have been thought quite trivial, as, for example, the due proportions of alkali and oil for soap-making for the village wash, or the exact heat of the water into which a leg of mutton should be plunged for boiling, all this joined to the utter absence of anything like party feeling, which even in a village assembly would certainly have made its appearance in an earlier epoch, was very amusing, and at the same time instructive. This old man, whose name was Henry Morsom, 
took us, after our meal and a rest, into a biggish hall, which contained a large collection of articles of manufacture and art from the last days of the machine period to that day, and he went over them with us, and explained them with great care. They also were very interesting, showing the transition from the makeshift work of the machines, which was at about its worst a little after the Civil War before told of, into the first years of the new handicraft period. Of course there was much overlapping of the periods, and at first the new handwork came in very slowly. "'You must remember,' said the old antiquary, "'that the handicraft was not the result of what used to be called material necessity. On the contrary, by that time the machines had been so much improved that almost all necessary work might have been done by them. And indeed many people at that time and before it used to think that machinery would entirely supersede handicraft, which certainly on the face of it seemed more than likely. But there was another opinion, far less logical, prevalent amongst the rich people before the days of freedom, which did not die out at once after that epoch had begun. This opinion, which from all I can learn seemed as natural then as it seems absurd now, was that while the ordinary daily work of the world would be done entirely by automatic machinery, the energies of the more intelligent part of mankind would be set free to follow the higher forms of the arts, as well as science and the study of history. It was strange, was it not, that they should thus ignore that aspiration after complete equality which we now recognize as the bond of all happy human society. I did not answer, but thought the more. Dick looked thoughtful, and said, "'Strange, neighbour? Well, I don't know. I have often heard my old kinsmen say, the one aim of all people before our time was to avoid work, or at least they thought it was. So of course the work which their daily life forced them to do seemed more like work than that which they seemed to choose for themselves.' "'True enough,' said Morsom. Anyhow, they soon began to find out their mistake, and that only slaves and slaveholders could live solely by setting machines going." Clara broke in here, flushing a little as she spoke. Was not their mistake once more bred of the life of slavery that they had all been living? A life which was always looking upon everything, except mankind, animate and inanimate, nature, as people used to call it, as one thing and mankind as another. It was natural to people thinking in this way that they should try to make nature their slave, since they thought nature was something outside them." "'Surely,' said Morsom. And they were puzzled as to what to do, till they found the feeling against a mechanical life, which had begun before the great change amongst people who had leisure to think of such things, was spreading insensibly till at last, under the guise of pleasure that was not supposed to be work, work that was pleasure begun to push out the mechanical toil, which they had once hoped at the best to reduce to narrow limits indeed, but never to get rid of, and which, moreover, they found that they could not limit as they had hoped to do. "'When did this new revolution gather head?' said I. "'In the half-century that followed the great change,' said Morsom. "'It began to be noteworthy.' Machine after machine was quietly dropped under the excuse that the machines could not produce works of art, and that works of art were more and more called for. "'Look here,' he said, "'here are some of the works of that time, rough and unskilful and handiwork, but solid and showing some sense of pleasure in the making.' "'They are very curious,' said I. 
taking up a piece of pottery from amongst the specimens which the antiquary was showing us. Not a bit like the work of either savages or barbarians, and yet with what once would have been called a hatred of civilization impressed upon them. "'Yes,' said Morsom, "'you must not look for delicacy there. In that period you could only have got that from a man who was practically a slave. But now, you see,' he said, leading me on a little, "'we have learned the trick of handicraft, and have added the utmost refinement of workmanship to the freedom of fancy and imagination.' I looked, and wondered indeed at the deftness and abundance of beauty of the work of men who had at last learned to accept life itself as a pleasure, and the satisfaction of the common needs of mankind and the preparation for them as work fit for the best of the race. I mused silently, but at last I said, "'What is to come after this?' The old man laughed. "'I don't know,' said he. "'We will meet it when it comes.' "'Meanwhile,' quoth Dick, "'we have got to meet the rest of our day's journey, so out into the street and down to the strand. Will you come a turn with us, neighbour? Our friend is greedy of your stories.' "'I will go as far as Oxford with you,' said he. "'I want a book or two out of the Bodleian Library. I suppose you will sleep in the old city?' "'No,' said Dick. "'We are going higher up. The hay is waiting us there, you know.' Morsom nodded, and we all went into the street together, and got into the boat a little above the town bridge. But just as Dick was getting the skulls into the rowlocks, the bows of another boat came thrusting through the low arch. Even at first sight it was a gay little craft indeed, bright green, and painted over with elegantly drawn flowers. As it cleared the arch, a figure as bright and gay-clad as the boat rose up in it a slim girl dressed in light blue silk that fluttered in the draughty wind of the bridge. I thought I knew the figure, and sure enough, as she turned her head to us and showed her beautiful face, I saw with joy that it was none other than the fairy godmother from the abundant garden on Runnymede—Ellen, to wit. We all stopped to receive her. Dick rose in the boat and cried out a genial good morrow. I tried to be as gentle as Dick, but failed. Clara waved a delicate hand to her, and Morsom nodded and looked on with interest. As to Ellen, the beautiful brown of her face was deepened by a flush, as she brought the gunwale of her boat alongside ours, and said, "'You see, neighbours, I had some doubt if you would all three come back past Runnymede, or if you did, whether you would stop there. And besides, I am not sure whether we—my father and I—shall not be away in a week or two for he wants to see a brother of his in the north country, and I should not like him to go without me. So I thought I might never see you again, and that seemed uncomfortable to me, and—and and so I came after you." "'Well,' said Dick, "'I am sure we are all very glad of that, although you may be sure that as for Clara and me, we should have made a point of coming to see you, and of coming the second time, if we had found you away the first. But, dear neighbour, there you are alone in the boat, and you have been sculling pretty hard, I should think, and might find a little quiet sitting pleasant, so we'd better part our company into two. Yes, said Ellen, I thought you would do that, so I have brought a rudder for my boat. Will you help me to ship it, please? And she went aft in her boat, and pushed along our side till she had brought the stern close to Dick's hand. He knelt down in our boat, and she in hers and the usual fumbling took place over hanging the rudder on its hooks, for, as you may imagine, 
No change had taken place in the arrangement of such an unimportant matter as the rudder of a pleasure-boat. As the two beautiful young faces bent over the rudder, they seemed to me to be very close together, and though it only lasted a moment, a sort of pang shot through me as I looked on. Clara sat in her place and did not look round, but presently, she said, with just the least stiffness in her tone, "'How shall we divide? Won't you go into Ellen's boat, Dick, since without offence to your guest you are the better sculler?' Dick stood up and laid his hand on her shoulder and said, "'No, no, let guest try what he can do. He ought to be getting into training now. Besides, we are in no hurry. We are not going far above Oxford, and even if we are benighted we shall have the moon, which will give us nothing worse of a night than a greyer day.' "'Besides,' said I, "'I may manage to do a little more with my sculling than merely keeping the boat from drifting downstream.' They all laughed at this, as if it had been a very good joke, and I thought that Ellen's laugh, even amongst the others, was one of the pleasantest sounds I had ever heard. To be short, I got into the new-come boat, not a little elated, and taking the sculls, set to work to show off a little. For—must I say it? I felt as if even that happy world were made the happier for my being so near this strange girl, although I must say that of all the persons I had seen in that world renewed, she was the most unfamiliar to me, the most unlike what I could have thought of. Clara, for instance, beautiful and bright as she was, was not unlike a very pleasant and unaffected young lady, and the other girls also seemed nothing more than specimens of a very much improved type which I had known in other times. But this girl was not only beautiful, with a beauty quite different from that of a young lady, but was in all ways so strangely interesting, so that I kept wondering what she would say or do next to surprise and please me. Not indeed that there was anything startling in what she actually said or did, but it was all done in a new way and always with that indefinable interest and pleasure of life, which I had noticed more or less in everybody, but which in her was more marked and more charming than in any one else that I had seen. We were soon under way, and going at a fair pace through the beautiful reaches of the river between Bensington and Dorchester. It was now about the middle of the afternoon, warm rather than hot, and quite windless. The clouds high up and light, pearly white and gleaming, softened the sun's burning, but did not hide the pale blue in most places, though they seemed to give it height and consistency. The sky, in short, looked really like a vault, as poets have sometimes called it, and not like mere limitless air, but a vault so vast and full of light that it did not in any way oppress the spirits. It was the sort of afternoon that Tennyson must have been thinking about, when he said of the lotus-eater's land that it was a land where it was always afternoon. Ellen leaned back in the stern, and seemed to enjoy herself thoroughly. I could see that she was really looking at things, and let nothing escape her, as I watched her, an uncomfortable feeling that she had been a little touched by love of the deft, ready, and handsome Dick, and that she had been constrained to follow us because of it, faded out of my mind since, if it had been so, she surely could not have been so excitedly pleased, even with the beautiful scenes we were passing through. For some time she did not say much, but at last, as we had passed under Shillingford Bridge, new-built, but somewhat on its old lines, she bade me hold the boat while she had a good look at the landscape through the graceful arch. Then she turned about to me and said, 
I do not know whether to be sorry or glad that this is the first time I have been in these reaches. It is true that it is a great pleasure to see all this for the first time, but if I had had a year or two of memory of it, how sweetly it would all have mingled with my life, waking or dreaming. I am so glad Dick has been pulling so slowly, so as to linger out the time here. How do you feel about your first visit to these waters? I do not suppose she meant to trap for me, but anyhow I fell into it and said, My first visit? It is not my first visit many a time. I know these reaches well. Indeed I may say that I know every yard of the Thames from Hammersmith to Cricklade. I saw the complications that might follow, as her eyes fixed mine with a curious look in them, that I had seen before at Runnymede, when I had said something which made it difficult for others to understand my present position amongst these people. I reddened, and said, in order to cover my mistake, "'I wonder you have never been so high as this, since you live on the Thames, and moreover row so well that it would be no great labour to you.' "'Let alone,' quoth I, insinuatingly, that anybody would be glad to row you." She laughed, clearly not at my compliment, as I am sure she need not have done, since it was a very commonplace fact, but at something which was stirring in her mind, and she still looked at me kindly, but with the above-said keen look in her eyes, and then she said, "'Well, perhaps it is strange, though I have a good deal to do at home, what with looking after my father, and dealing with two or three young men who have taken a special liking to me, and all of whom I cannot please at once. But you, dear neighbour, it seems to me strange that you should know the upper river, than I should not know it, for as I understand you have only been in England a few days. But perhaps you mean that you have read about it in books, and seen pictures of it, though that does not come to much either." "'Truly,' said I. Besides, I have not read any books about the Thames. It was one of the minor stupidities of our time that no one thought fit to write a decent book about what may fairly be called our only English river." The words were no sooner out of my mouth than I saw that I had made another mistake, and I really felt annoyed with myself, as I did not want to go into a long explanation just then, or begin another series of Odyssean lies. Somehow Ellen seemed to see this, and she took no advantage of my slip. Her piercing look changed into one of mere frank kindness, and she said, "'Well, anyhow, I am glad that I am travelling these waters with you, since you know our river so well, and I know little of it past Pangbourne, for you can tell me all I want to know about it.' She paused a minute, and then said, "'Yet you must understand that the part I do know, I know as thoroughly as you do. I should be sorry for you to think that I am careless of a thing so beautiful and interesting as the Thames.' She said this quite earnestly, and with an air of affectionate appeal to me which pleased me very much, but I could see that she was only keeping her doubts about me for another time. Presently we came to Day's Lock, where Dick and his two sitters had waited for us. He would have me go ashore, as if to show me something which I had never seen before, and nothing loath I followed him. Ellen by my side, to the well-remembered dykes and the long church beyond them, which was still used for various purposes by the good folk of Dorchester, where, by the way, the village guest-house still had the sign of the fleur de luce, which it used to bear in the days when hospitality had to be bought and sold. This time, however, I made no sign of all this being familiar to me, though as we sat for a while on the mound of the dykes looking up at Synodon and its clear-cut trench, and its sister Mamelon of Whitnam, 
I felt somewhat uncomfortable under Ellen's serious attentive look, which almost drew from me the cry, "'How little anything is changed here!' We stopped again at Abingdon, which, like Wallingford, was in a way both old and new to me, since it had been lifted out of its nineteenth-century degradation, and otherwise was as little altered as might be. Sunset was in the sky as we skirted Oxford, by Osney. We stopped a minute or two hard by the ancient castle, to put Henry Morsom ashore. It was a matter of course that so far as they could be seen from the river, I missed none of the towers and spires of that once dawn-beridden city, but the meadows all round, which, when I had last passed through them, were getting daily more and more squalid, more and more impressed with the seal of the stir and intellectual life of the nineteenth century, were no longer intellectual, but had once again become as beautiful as they should be, and the little hill of Hinksey, with two or three very pretty stone houses new grown on it—I use the word advisedly, for they seemed to belong to it—looked down happily on the full streams and waving grass, grey now but for the sunset, with its fast ripening seeds. The railway having disappeared, and therewith the various level bridges over the streams of Thames, we were soon through Medley Lock, and in the wide water that washes Port Meadow, with its numerous population of geese nowise diminished, and I thought with interest how its name and use had survived from the older imperfect communal period, through the time of the confused struggle and tyranny of the rights of property, into the present rest and happiness of complete communism. I was taken ashore again at Godstow, to see the remains of the old nunnery, pretty nearly in the same condition as I had remembered them, and from the high bridge over the cut close by, I could see, even in the twilight, how beautiful the little village with its grey stone houses had become, for we had now come into the stone country, in which every house must either be built, walls and roof, of grey stone, or be a blot on the landscape. We still rode on after this, Ellen taking the skulls in my boat, we passed a weir a little higher up, and about three miles beyond it came by moonlight again to a little town, where we slept at a house thinly inhabited, as its folk were mostly tented in the hayfields. End of chapter 27